brought my people from the land of Egypt. I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man for a leader over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a, a house in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house in my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you should not build the house. But your son, who will be born to you, he shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set the, the ark in which is become of the Lord, which he has made his son to Israel. Okay, what is Solomon doing here? <laughs> yes, he's talking to the Israelites, praising God. The God who, uh, in verse 4, spoke with his mouth and fulfilled with his hands. God fulfilled the promises that he had made to David. During the whole time, from the time they came out of Egypt to this point, God had not yet chosen a city for his name to dwell. Now, do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that God had said he would do that? Moses had said that God would choose a place for his name to dwell, and that's where they would worship, and that's where he, they would offer sacrifices. But up to this point in time, God hadn't chosen it yet. Now he has. And what city is it? And from this point on, things change. Do you remember in the time of Samuel, for example, where all Samuel would offer sacrifices? Shiloh, Shiloh or <coughs> Ramah? Remember when he went up to Bethlehem and offered sacrifices there and on high places in various locations? Because at that time, there was not one central location where all the sacrifices were supposed to be offered. Apparently, it was okay to sacrifice to God on the high places in the era of Samuel. But we're going to see from this point forward that sacrificing on the high places is wrong. Because God has now chosen the, pl the place, the exclusive place, all sacrifices must be offered in Jerusalem only. And so from here on out, the high places are not places where they ought to offer sacrifices. I think this is the sign of a change of, of plan. God has finally fulfilled this. He's chosen Jerusalem. He's chosen David. David wanted to build the house. It was good that he wanted to, but it wasn't God's plan. He planned for Solomon to build it. And so Solomon says in verse 10, God fulfilled this. I have risen in the place of my father David. I do sit on his throne just like God says, and I have built the house, and I've put the ark in the house. The climax of, of this whole plan up to this point. Comments and questions? After this, when we see uh, worshiping on the high places, is it mostly associated with Baal worship? It sometimes is, but by no means always. I was just looking at something today in the end of Second Chronicles, and I won't know where it's at, we'll come across it, where there is a specific distinction made between the offerings on the high places um, to God and the offerings on the high places to idols. 
So there are several times when offerings on the high places is not to idol gods. It's to the God, but it's still wrong because it's the wrong place. That is kind of a, that's kind of a controversial topic because of the, the fact that offerings on high places were allowed earlier. But I think that the answer to it is this changes the pattern. God has chosen now. Other comments and questions? All right, what we've got from here on out is in the presence of the people, Solomon prays to God. And um, we will uh, listen in, 12 to 17. Then he stood before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. And he set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant David, my father, that you, would, that you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth, and have fulfilled it with your hands, as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that, what, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. Okay, so where is Solomon? On the platform before the people. Yes, he's there in front of this great assembly of people on a prayer platform. <laughs> he's got this uh, kind of, what would we call this, kind of... Uh, um, stage. stage, yeah, that's a good term. Uh, and he kneels there in front of the people and, and prays a, a long prayer. The rest of this chapter, basically, is the prayer that he prays. It's parallel to 1 Kings 8. Um, and in the first part of the prayer, in 14 to 17, what is he basically doing? Praising God for... How great he is, how unique he is, and how, yes, like this promise he'd made uh, to David. And God has confirmed that promise. And so he's praising God for who he is, his uniqueness, and his fidelity to his commitments. I believe that you can see in prayers like this intensity. Even the fact that so often he says, Oh Lord, um, indicates some fervor. I would suggest that for me at least, I need more emotional energy in my prayers. I think prayer easily becomes mechanical and sort of a, a, a routine. You know, it's kind of, we say prayers. And then necessarily mean we pray. Prayer needs to be fervent, and, and a real expression. If you talk to somebody about something you care about, you show it in your voice, in your gestures, in your facial expression. 
what we may show to God as we mumble through this mechanical memorized prayer is that we don't really care. We don't have any real intensity behind it. I think you can see that Solomon does here. Comments and questions through 17. It ought to be the longer we've been a Christian, the closer we are to the Lord, and the more real and intense our prayers are. It's a shame when that's not the case. We just have to be careful about it. We have, we have to, yeah, we have to mean it. You know, we have to really, you know, talk to the Lord as we're praying. Do you understand the point? Why would you kneel in prayer? <coughs> yeah, I think that's the, the, the mindset behind that is that it's sort of a posture of lowering oneself and humbling oneself, which is appropriate. Why would you spread your hands out toward the sky? Yeah. What do you do when you talk to somebody? You ever notice that? Watch people when they talk, especially if they're, you know, pretty serious about, pretty excited about it. You talk towards somebody. If you see somebody who's backs away and kind of gestures behind them, you got somebody who's got a real personal space issue or whatever. Most of the time, if you really care about something, you extend yourself towards somebody when you talk to them. You you do that without even thinking about it. You know, it's a natural reaction. Um, you know, especially if you're somewhat outgoing. If you're really, really shy, then you may not. But if, you're, if you care and you're talking to somebody you're comfortable with, you, you go toward them. I think the idea of spreading your hands out to God, even looking up, is because you see God as being in heaven and you're directing yourself toward Him as you pray. Now, I don't believe that that's the only posture in either of those cases there's others but they both make sense and um it may be that we ought to give more attention to the position of our body when we pray it might not be such a bad idea to think through that um i think especially this that when we pray we need to really sense the idea of talking to God. I think sometimes prayer becomes sort of just we're thinking to ourselves. And if you think about, you know, bowing your head and closing your eyes, I'm not against that, but I think the abuse of that may be that it sort of seems like we're just kind of talking to ourselves. And that's not the way we ought to think about that. There may be a good reason to close our eyes. Maybe that helps with avoiding distractions. I can see some practical value to that. 
The bowing of the head may be a symbol of humility, as the dropping to the knees would be. But if it's just kind of we sort of focus in on ourselves, then we've missed the idea of talking to God. And there may be some times it would really be helpful to us, especially if we were able to go outside and we were able to look up and raise our hands up and talk to God. Not that you would have to do that to think that, but I think it might help us, you know, connect in that way. You can think about those things. I think that's a good comment. I would say there's nothing wrong with any of these postures in prayer, and lifting up our hands, looking up to heaven, kneeling, or whatever. You see that fairly often. It wouldn't be a bad idea at all. In terms of 1 Timothy 2.8 specifically, I do think that that is not primarily a posture passage. When he says lifting up holy hands, I think he's thinking of prayer in itself as being a lifting up of our hands to God. And the point is, we need to be sure that the hands we lift up to God are holy and pure and not filled with strife and dissension and so forth. So I don't know that you could use that passage necessarily to argue he was, he was really thinking about just a physical posture of lifting your hands up. But I think there's nothing wrong with that, and I think there would be some advantages of that sometimes, especially to me if we were outdoors. It may be a little bit more difficult to visualize that when you've got a roof right there you're, you're thinking about. Maybe you can, you know, think through that. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I know, like, when we're singing, and, uh, I mean, it can help, I mean, we think especially about the Lord or about heaven, they got to look up, I mean, if you just think up. You know, I mean, the fact that you see these things fairly commonly in the Bible, you know, may indicate that they thought more naturally about those things than we do. You know, we're reasonably mechanical about bowing your head and closing your eyes. And, and I don't think you see any specific posture as just the norm. But I think you see positions of the body that fit what they're doing. That they, they probably acted naturally. You know, there were a lot of times they felt, you know, humbled. And it was natural to drop down or fall on their face in some cases. And, and it was natural for them to look up, you know, you look to who you're talking to and to raise their hands up or to gesture toward God. I, I think those would be natural things. You know, it's not like, you know, the problem with some of the Pentecostals and things like that is, it, you know, the same problem we have with bowing our head and closing our eyes sometimes. It can become sort of just sort of a ritual, kind of a show. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen this, you know, <laughs> you know. I don't know that that's exactly, not the, you know, any posture is necessarily wrong, but the idea is not waving to God. The idea is more reaching out to God. You know, it's like it becomes just sort of a, a mechanical thing that has no connection with what you're doing. You know, so often, you know, you've got to think beyond just, okay, I, I wave my hands to God. No, that's not really the idea. The idea is reaching up to God. At least that's, that's what I see in that. You never know what we're going to talk about, do you? Comments and questions for those? Good, good I mean, things to think about. I'm curious as to the matter. If we see how they read the scriptures in the Old Testament. They stood up to read. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It was serious. They were taking it very serious. And we've got to take that type of serious attitude when we read the Word of God, especially if we're asking for wisdom and knowledge and wanting to learn these things. You know, the way that we read and how we apply ourselves in that, the way that we pray, the way that we worship, all of it really goes together. Good point. It needs to come from the heart. It needs to be something that's real. Other thoughts? All right, we continue the prayer, uh, 18 to 21. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built? <clears throat> Yet have you re respect unto the prayer of, uh, of thy servant and to his supplication? O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry into the prayer which thy servant prays before you. And your eyes, <clears throat> that your eyes may be open toward this house, day and night, even toward the place where you have said that you would put your name there, to hearken to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. And to har hearken, and hearken now to the supplications of thy servant and of your people Israel. And when they shall pray toward this place, Yea, hear, hear you from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when, when thou hearest, forgive. Okay, he says again in 18, and a point that he stresses a lot is, this house does not uh, limit God. God dwells in much more than just this house. Um, you can't fit God in, as someone said. Um, but the focus of this prayer overall is, he is praying about praying. That's really what this prayer is all about. He's saying, I want you, God, to listen to this prayer, which, you, which I'm praying, and that you listen to the prayers of all those who pray toward this place. When I or your people pray toward the temple, that you would be present there and that you would listen and respond. You're up in heaven. But the temple is sort of the focus of the, of the meeting between us and you. And so when we pray toward the temple, we pray toward the place where you've caused your name to dwell, listen to our prayers. That's really what the focus of the rest of this prayer pretty much is going to be about. It's going to ask God in various situations to hear their prayers and to respond with forgiveness and blessing. It's, by the way, something we probably don't pray as much as we should, asking God to hear and respond to our prayers. We sort of take it for granted that he'll do that. But it's appropriate to ask him to do that. Comments through 21? Interesting thought. They really thought in terms of directing themselves toward where God meets his people. <laughs> Obviously, Daniel couldn't see the temple, but he knew which direction it was, just as we can't see God, but we know what direction he is. And so Daniel oriented himself toward that place. That is, that's an interesting thought, and uh, that's exactly how they saw the temple. They would pray toward the temple. That's the place where they meet with God.
All right, 22 to 31. Problem between two people, verse 22 and 23, and they turn to you, hear and judge, punish the one who's in the wrong, and justify the one who's in the right. If your people, verse 24 and 25, are defeated in war against an enemy, and they turn to you, confessing their sins, and asking for help, then listen, forgive, and pray. Uh, listen and forgive uh, them. Um, in 26 and 27, if the, you punish them by bringing drought, and they pray and confess and turn from their sin, then hear and forgive and bless them. Or if there's any other affliction, verse 28, lots of different things, but they turn to you, they pray and they repent, then hear, forgive, and bless. This is envisioning the prayers that would be offered in the future. It's envisioning all these different situations where God punishes and then they confess and repent and asking God to hear, forgive, and bless. Comments? Questions? Thirty-two and thirty-three. Also concerning the foreigner who is not from your people Israel, when he comes from a far country, for your great name's sake, and your might, and your mighty mighty hand, and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear you from heaven, from the dwelling place, from your dwelling place, and do according to, to all for which the foreigner calls to you. 
in order that the people of the earth may know your name, and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this is this that this house which I have built is called by your name. You wouldn't have expected this one, would you? What's he saying here? When a non-Israelite prays toward this place, what does he ask God to do? Listen to him and answer his prayer. Did the Israelites imagine that non-Israelites could pray to God? Yes. That's, that's the teaching here. You know, that's what, the, that's what the, the scriptures are saying. This was not just a house of prayer for the Jews. Remember what Jesus said in the cleansing of the temple, the house of prayer for all the nations? The idea was not just that Jews would turn to God and he's asking God to answer, even if other people from other nations turn. He's asking God to answer them when they pray toward him. There was much more of a sense in the scriptures of the Jews being a blessing for the nations around them than what the Jews actually thought and did. Comments and questions? Thirty-four to forty-two. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord this city, you have chosen a simple one built for your name, and hear from heaven their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to Okay, when they go to battle, 34 and 35, and they turn to you, answer and, and, and help them. Worst possible scenario, verse 36, they sin, you're angry, you, take, you let an enemy take them captive. But if in captivity they repent, they confess fully their sin, an intense confession into verse 37, they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul, and they pray toward Jerusalem, then hear and bless them. You know, so he's envisioning all kinds of situations and asking God when they turn toward you with repentance and confession and sincerity, listen and forgive. And isn't it appropriate in this book where they have just come back from captivity that this is emphasized. There's a lot in this book that would have really had 
uh, struck a chord with the, this post-captivity generation. And so this is his prayer. He asked God to listen, to bless him, and not to turn away from him, to remember uh, his kindness to David. So this is the prayer of dedication that Solomon prays uh, here at the dedication of the temple. Comments and questions? Chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> So what happened when Solomon finished praying? Fire came down and consumed the offerings. We saw that already in First Chronicles in connection with Yes, after David had sinned in the census and God was staying the plague, the fire came down and consumed the offering at the threshing floor of Ornan where David was offering the sacrifice. Now the fire comes down and consumes this offering, and this connects right back with the end of chapter 5, before the prayer of dedication, uh, where the priest could not enter because the glory of the Lord was filling the house, and they bowed down and worshiped God and praised him for his goodness and his love. Four to seven. When the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord, King Solomon offered sacrifices of twenty-two thousand oxen and one hundred twenty thousand sheep. Thus, the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. <coughs> The priests stood at their posts, and the Levites also, with the instruments of the music to the Lord, which King David had made to give him praise to him, for his loving kindness and everlasting. Whenever he gave, whenever he gave praise by their means, one priest on the other side gave trumpet, and all his words came. Then Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, before, because the bronze altar was called what are they doing here? How much are they sacrificing? 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, guys. In a two-week festival. <laughs> the altar wasn't big enough. <laughs> big altar, but wasn't big enough for this. So he consecrates the whole middle of the courtyard. <coughs> they has this huge, uh, you know, bonfire. Well, Al, what do you think about this? I don't know that we always understand what's going on. Now, I don't know what all these offerings were, but I assume that a fair percentage, he mentions them in verse 7, were peace offerings. Now, what was special about the peace offerings? The people got to eat a portion of the peace offering. So 
Among other things, these sacrifices are feeding this huge multitude that's gotten together for the two-week feast. They're having, they're uh, enjoying these fellowship meals with the Lord and are able to eat off of this as well. So this is both sacrificing to God and, and, and barbecuing the meat for the people. But it was huge. It was enormous. It was incredible. <laughs> this is uh, an enormous expense. Can you imagine? 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen. Solomon was really wealthy. <laughs> I assume that's the total amount offered, is what I assume. No carbs. Anything else through seven? Eight to eleven. Okay, so there's the seven-day dedication feast, and then there's the seven-day feast of the tabernacles on the back end of that. So they're really a two-week feast period, and then they go back to their tents rejoicing uh, over the blessings God has given to Solomon. And so they finish the dedication of the house of the Lord. Comments and questions? It was it was a, a an extremely significant event for the nation. It was a big thing in the history of Israel. A big thing. There was the, just the dedication feast for this the, for the temple that was on the front end of the feast of tabernacles. Yes, yes. And the week before, they had the dedication feast. So they really were together for a two-week feasting period. Twelve to sixteen.